Mikey. I've been reading this book, man. It's, it's a German book. It's called The Healing of the World, The Golden Age of Medicine, 1840 to 1914. <laughs> and it's just amazing how far we've come since then, <laughs> since the 1840s. Uh, it's written by this German author living in the States uh, called hmm. Ronald Gerste. Uh, you would probably call him Ronald Gersty or something, or Gersty or something. <laughs> <laughs> That's what you do to our names. Admit it. Yeah, now we murder Admit them. Admit it. Yeah. Amazing book. Talks about all this medical advance. Um, yeah. in, like, for example, invention of narcosis, first narcosis. Um, yeah. Finding out that cholera is actually transmitted via drinking water right. in London. Yeah. Um, so there's all these episodes. Um, one of them talks about also just the basic effect of hygiene, like hand washing in a hospital. Who knew that this? Know, who knew that, that right? this might <laughs> help people from not getting infected and dying after an operation, or women who had given yeah. birth and not getting infected uh, in the uterus and also dying from that. That's so, um, yeah. <laughs> quite amazing uh, how far we've come, right? It's crazy to me that basically just soap has saved so many more lives than almost any other technology we've developed. Like it's, it's, it's amazing that just like moving the little bugs off of our hands and off of our bodies has just like, there's so many lives. Oh, yeah, it's a wonderful read. So far, only in German, I think, available. Uh, I hope it gets translated to, mm. to English. Uh, yeah. For our German listeners, Die Heilung der Welt, published in Klettkotter Verlag. This is the Americanist podcast. My name is Johannes Ehrmann in Berlin, Germany, and I'm joined, as every time, by my dear friend and accomplished scholar over in Stanford, California, Mike Bayoki. <laughs> We're going to talk about healthcare. It's actually it started with this book that I've that I've read because um, I realized that the German public healthcare system is actually as old as 1883, um, mm. and it was invented or introduced um, by the famous politician Otto von Bismarck, the Chancellor of the German Reich. Not this one. Not this one. Don't worry. The one. One before, uh, yep. Yeah, yeah. Um, so Bismarck, a very Prussian sea lion of a man with a huge mustache. You know, you can you can imagine the guy, right? Basically, basically, basically <laughs> being born with like a steel hat. Um, yeah. So he introduced this law concerning the health insurance of workers. Um, and actually, the word in, in German is not health insurance, but it's we literally say insurance of the sick, Krankenversicherung. Ah. So we, we kind of do it the yeah. other way around. And the interesting thing is that Bismarck didn't do that because he loved the worker so much or because he was just this beneficial dude. Uh, he was a politician. He cared about his power and the emperor. Yeah. Um, and so he basically, the safety net, so from what I found, the safety net before that for people had been mostly the churches, the families, uh, the unions. Um, and he tried to veer people a little bit away from that, especially industrial and agricultural workers. Oh, super interesting. Yeah, when, when was the, um, the American public health care system started? Yeah, well, first off, I don't think we have public health, <laughs> so don't, you're already <laughs> rubbing it in. <laughs> Jerk. Yeah, I mean, like, maybe kind of equivalent to the book that you're reading is um, this awesome book by Paul Starr. I think it was like written in the 80s now, so it's almost like 40 okay. years old. But it's called The Social Transformation 
of American medicine or mm-hmm. something like that. And it traces American medicine and sort of how our physicians mm-hmm. started from like basically the start of our country, probably to like the 1880s mm-hmm. or something like that. So roughly like, you know, dropping off right around when, uh, when you're... And we should say uh, when your country started, because I'm just researching this for, for my next book. Uh, well, medicine was kind of like bloodletting, purging, <laughs> which means I didn't know that means actually humorism. just making people vomit. Well, yeah, yes, it, it basically. I mean, you, they also would, like, evacuate people's bowels. They would, like, ah, induce, like, like basically, yeah. Any direction. Okay. Any direction. Anything out the nose. Like, oh, they would do everything. Sweet. <laughs> yeah, and just, I don't know, I guess leeches, stuff like that. Yeah. Just, yeah. Because yeah, they, they, this is the point where they were believing, like, humors and imbalances of the, mm-hmm. the energies of the body mm-hmm. and, and that kind of stuff. They would talk about, like the black humors and the yellow humors and like they're basically looking at like different like like parts of the like digestive system yeah. and, and so they basically had no idea what they were doing yeah absolutely no idea what they're doing okay. <laughs> but it's interesting so this book is first off excellent it's sort of interesting because like in the united states we have not had a lot of like political organizations let me see, like, oh, like, workers, like, unions have never, like, done a super, have never, like, sustained themselves for very long, but physicians saw the sort of collective bargaining, the institutionalization, and they jumped on it really early. So Mm -hmm. it's really interesting to read this because, like, early on in the Americas, like, there were um, physicians who were sort of, like, diagnostics. Then there were surgeons who were, you know, scalpels and cutting in and that kind of stuff. And then there were, like, apothecaries or, like, you know, pharmacists, like, precursors to pharmacists. And these were thought of as three very different groups. Mm-hmm. And actually, interestingly, surgeons were essentially perfectly synonymous with, like, butchers. Like, actual, like, cutting of the meats. Cutting of limbs, kind of basically, yeah. in the wars. and Yeah, exactly. Because there was in, no other way to treat even infections, right? This is also in the book that I read. Just to just be clear, these are actually basically the same exact people who would also cut your meats for the weekend like you know for your for your family dinner like so they were uh, almost perfectly affiliated the idea was that like it was the scalpels the cutting the sharp the sharp uh, instruments that were all the saws yes saws yes that's right yeah going through the bones because they didn't just cut off the the, you know the pinky no it was not a (laughs) this is not an (laughs) elegant science at this point um so yeah here in the united states very it's actually really interesting to hear you talk about like the german development because here it was sort of an american spin on it where the individuals who were thinking of themselves as men of medicine and it was basically just men at this point and uh physicians they wanted to harness political power so they started like a credentialing program. Actually, the very first uh, medical college was at Penn. Oh, University of Penn was a precursor to really? University of Pennsylvania. Yeah, it was the oh, first okay. accrediting uh, institution on this, and so they started doing credentialing and that kind of stuff. So they basically grabbed the power before the state could, and they formed um, like medical colleges. They formed institutional groups and that kind of stuff. So they've been holding on to this power that they made both like sort of capitalist and sort of individuals get to hold the right to give medicine or withhold medicine or that kind of stuff they held that and then later on once they had enough power then they basically made the state recognize in an official capacity the credentialing process Mm -hmm. so the power has been sectioned off carved out and basically made private essentially from the get-go 
So it's really interesting to hear. So that even you guys before there was medicine, the, that's right. the medical personnel was already protecting their elite status. That's exactly. Right. Well, that's actually so. That's super interesting. Part of it too is like at the time when they were doing this, the physicians were starting to try to grab this power. <laughs> Their argument was like, hey, we are experts in making people and keeping people healthy. And the best argument at the time against it was like, no, you're not. Yeah. <laughs> the best argument at that time was like, your your outcomes are no better than anybody else's. Like, we should go to like, yeah, natural mm. healers and that kind of stuff. And they were, they were basically right. Mm. I mean, it looked like the, the outcomes at that period, like American physicians had no idea what they were doing. It's interesting because I, I always thought it's it was mostly your innate belief in the infinite power of the individual to uh, pull yeah. themselves out of any misery uh, and also right. sickness. Yeah, I kind of wonder if those interplay, mm-hmm. right? Like one of the things that I, uh, you and I have talked about this before, but like it's really interesting to hear you when you do your first person or like, what do you say, primary sources um, research because uh, when you do that, and I hear you talk about it, I realize that I see the history, like American history through a lens. Like, so mm-hmm. I'm looking at it from 2020. Mm-hmm. I see America in the 1770s mm-hmm. through the lens of whatever the 1940s here, how they saw it and how the 1800s saw, you know, so mm-hmm. um, I think, I suspect that part of what's going on here is that the foundation of the American individualism probably also was being co-developed by physicians and like sort of thinking about like it's not a state level thing it is we're, we're going to control the political power which is probably the original impetus but it was it was like part of their arguments became you know this is an individual person that we're healing it's going to be the powers between me and this individual and and you can still mm-hmm. see that today and so mm-hmm. I, th- I think there's probably a co-development between mm-hmm. american ideas of individualism and like and probably medicine yeah and I also love um, that they used to call um, this era before the 1840s, um, with all the bloodletting, purging, and cutting of limbs, uh, the age of heroic medicine. So uh, <laughs> heroes were at work there. <laughs> that <laughs> sounds very sounds very American. Yeah, it really does. And it also you basically had to be a hero because we're gonna like you're gonna die if we don't. <laughs> we didn't actually get you healthy. We just killed yeah. all the people who were sick. Yeah, and inflicted a lot of pain while doing so. Oh well. God, yeah, right. Because this yeah. is also, I mean, before narcosis, can you just even imagine like you know just <sighs> amputations no. or or even just a tooth being pulled out? Yeah. <laughs> You, like high probability of dying, right? Yeah, or at least yeah, having I mean, like so much pain. Uh, yeah, <laughs> your teeth are rotting out, and we're just gonna yank them. Yeah. Before we move to this question, what's going on with the American system? Um, yeah. So I've pulled up a little bit um, historical facts on the on the German system here, as we started talking about Bismarck. So in the very beginning, the costs were split um, between the workers and their employers. And the workers actually had to pay two thirds of the uh, of the mm-hmm. premiums, you would say, or yeah, yeah, yep, um, yep. and yep. one third was coming from the employers. State was not paying anything on top, so this was moving up from initially less than ten percent of the population, mostly industrial and agricultural workers, uh, to now roughly ninety percent um, of the population falling under this public sector yeah. uh, of of health insurance. So that's seventy three million yeah. German people uh, currently. Um, 
which does not mean, however, that the other 10% are without a health insurance. Um, but there's also a smaller um, sort of elite, if you want, side arm of the system, the private health sector. Um, that's covering around 9 million uh, Germans uh, on top of that. So, yeah, so there is a universal health care here. Yeah. And does that elite system, do they get like better access or yeah. to different doctors or fat? Yeah. Like what is, what are you getting in that premium? Yeah, better mm-hmm. access, um, quicker um, dates um, for yeah. whatever, an MRI, for okay. example, or like uh, very expensive procedures. Because, and yeah. sometimes it's different doctors. There's only some doctors who are like a private practice um, but see, yeah. a lot of doctors offer both um, and yeah there's of course also an inherent inequality there because sometimes they would ask you you know what's your insurance and you tell them and if it's a public insurance then it's uh, the next one is like in eight weeks uh, and if it's a private right. and they can bill you i think it's like six or seven times more sometimes oh my gosh then it's like yeah, yeah you want to come in tomorrow right. <laughs> so, i see yeah, so and currently this is also has changed since the beginning uh, for the public sector. Uh, now it's f- split 50-50 between the employer and the employee. Um, and it makes up currently around 14.6% of your monthly wages. Mm. Um, so that's it, it can vary a little bit depending on your on your insurer. Um, but there's like a quota that's set by the by the state for that. That's there's actually not only one public health insurance, there's roughly 100 different in Germany. Oh, yeah. <laughs> if and you think... Wait, in yeah. what sense? Like, is it like... Uh, different, yeah. different insurers. Different insurers um, that yep. also compete in a way um, uh-huh. for like additional benefits. Um, so it's mostly... I mean, the, the general care has to be the same. But additional benefits, for example, around birth or sickness or like glasses or cancer screenings or also alternative healing methods. Like, this hmm. is my, my favorite uh, word in in pronunciation in English, osteopathy. <laughs> osteopathy. Um, it actually started in the US, I found out, 1874. Oh. Yeah, in Kansas. Yeah. So, yeah, that's how they're competing. Um, and if you think 100 different is a lot, uh, in 1970, there were 1,800. Uh, and in oh 1990, there were still 1,000. Um, so there's a lot of mergers. Um, yeah. So they're trying to, yeah, also gather strength also to compete with each other so it's, it's getting less and less but still you have a choice of if you ever lived in germany you could choose between 100 different roughly uh, public health insurers i mean or like, go private of course i think as an american you would have to go private right <laughs> you love it you want it you yeah, want it i, know. I was like ooh. <laughs> i can i can crowd out someone else ooh. But tell me, but I'm interested because I, I always thought with Obamacare, you guys yeah. now have a universal system, but the, it's not the, no, not the case. No, or? no, no, no. <laughs> you know, um, ugh. <laughs> so first off, I you know, it's interesting that you have 100 insurers. I guess like it, technically we may have something like that. But in fact, in practice, there's something like 80 to 90 percent of our market is dominated by like four carriers, uh, okay. four insurance companies. Mm-hmm. Um, so Obamacare was sort of like a what it did was it made sure that everybody could have access to health insurance. So here in the United States, like uh, since its inception, there's been no guarantee that you would be able to have health insurance uh, if you were below the age of 65. Okay. Um, so there's Medicare, which was designed basically like uh, you know for a long time if you be if you survived here in the United States to be sort of like retirement age, it was not clear that you would have enough money 
to stop, you know, to be in retirement. Mm -hmm. And so, and a huge chunk of that came from, you know, medical costs. And so at some point we decided ethically, we could not continue to allow our senior citizens to go into bankruptcy and, and, you know, so, so we built a, a, a public insurance option that essentially everybody is on is very similar to yours where the vast majority, like 90% or something like that, I would, I would guess are, are on purely just a public option. And then there's a buy up premium version um, that people, and so it's very, in terms of the rough outline, it's very similar to what you're talking about mm-hmm. above mm-hmm. the age of 65. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, but below that, oh my gosh, it's a mess. It's a total disaster. And Obamacare, what it did was it allowed people who were falling through the cracks, people who didn't have a lot of money. Oh, here in the United States, our insurance is almost completely tied to your ins- uh, to your employer. It's a bizarre, mm-hmm. doesn't have to happen. It's awful. And a lot of mm-hmm. Americans don't even realize this. But like, yeah, our, our access is essentially controlled. You know, what kinds of health insurance you can get, which insurers you can use. All that stuff is chosen by your employer. And then... Um, yeah, and if you lose, if you like lose your job or you switch your job, you lose your health insurance. Mm-hmm. And so Obamacare basically stepped in to offer plans that could be portable, that you could move between um, different uh, mm-hmm. employers. And if you didn't weren't employed, you could also get health insurance. I think yeah. that's also a very big difference, right? I mean, the state is not so much um, a big actor in this whole right. game of of healthcare. Uh, as it is in in Germany, which might also have historical connotations, because yes. I mean, people should know that the German national state didn't even exist before 1871. Right. Um, so this is almost a hundred years later than the U.S. came into being yeah. as a national state. Uh, you guys actually play a role in our current healthcare disaster. So What? a big chunk of insurance here in the United States didn't really exist until World War II. Um, oh. So during World War, this is like the big story of like how we are. How's that linked to Germany? Were we involved in (laughs) that? I have no idea what we're talking about. So it's bizarre. Okay, this is like the weirdest story for how we ended up in this mess. So in like the 40s, as we were gearing up to fight people who we won't name. The Hans, the Krauts, the Fritzes. (laughs) The uh, (laughs) Congress decided that Oh, okay. This is how it worked. Is they decided that because a lot of men were disappearing from the workforce and women were entering the workforce, uh, companies that were starting to compete and wages, you know, with wages to like really increase. And they were really worried about two things. One is women getting economic power, which is like a disaster. Mm-hmm. I can't believe we like mm-hmm. whatever. But they talked about that. The mm-hmm. other thing is that they were worried about causing massive inflation. Mm-hmm. So it's not wise, but they put a cap on wages here in the United States during World War II. Mm-hmm. Um, and, but we also just needed a bunch of people to be in the workforce. So it was very crazy. People were not doing smart things. Um, but here's the insane part is companies were trying to figure out how they could attract um, you know, employees. And they realized that if they, there was no restriction on benefits, so like life insurance and uh, health insurance and pensions uh, became like really popular during this period. And here's the really weird quirk to all of this is that the tax collecting policy, there was a very ambiguous subsection of the tax. I'm not kidding. This is like how crazy this is. Some ambiguous like subsection of a subsection of the tax law 
made it kind of sound like the government would not tax benefits. So if we like offered pensions, they wouldn't mm-hmm. tax it. If they offered health insurance, they wouldn't tax it. And so it is ambiguous. So a, a couple companies asked for clarification, and it looks like histor- historically, it didn't even go all the way to the top of the IRS, the, like the, our tax organization. Yeah. It went to like some mid-level bureaucrat, and the mid-level bureaucrat was like, yes, the interpretation is that we will not tax benefits. And this is why we have <laughs> insurance like so crazy here in the United States is like it became a tax benefit. They were saving 20 or 30 percent. It's the eternal American promise, right? Oh. Tax deduction. Yes. Lowering your taxes. Wonderful. Uh, so <laughs> when that happened, like all of a sudden these companies are competing for employees and then they have to like they made it private insurance. And so they were like competing that way. And mm. so. Everything got locked into your employer. Your employers were seeing tax advantages. Wages got pushed down. It was just like, it was a series of crazy disasters and that has left us where we are now. And that's why we have no public health insurance. One thing I'm also trying to understand is um, why um, the US spending um, on healthcare is so much higher than than everywhere else basically in the in the developed world and i've pulled up these numbers um so the u.s spends eleven thousand u.s dollars per capita per year and the comparable country average is five thousand seven hundred so it's almost double that uh, germany is at six thousand three hundred but the u.s is just and there's there's a graph also we can link to it's just insane there's like yeah. uh, there's a curve and then the u.s is just somewhere in the sky you know it's like, why is why is this is it because it's the private system and there's just these these yeah. huge i mean medicine is expensive and no one is putting right. a hold on that or yeah I, there's a couple i mean there's like several things going mm-hmm. on here like um let me start with the apologists like so the people mm-hmm. who try to defend the american system what they say uh and i think this is sort of the best version of of their argument is there are two parts to it one is america is also the by far the biggest innovator in medicine mm-hmm. um, we have we build the best technologies we have the best this is not by the way debatable okay <laughs> I, I mean it's, it's true yeah, I mean, that, that's, why, that's why an American company uh, invented this wonderful new vaccine uh, it's called oh. BioNTech oh no wait uh, it was a German company right <laughs> But they needed the Americans to market it. it. Yeah, I know. We, we, marketed, we're <laughs> we needed you to market to it. <laughs> yeah, hats off to Pfizer. So there's that. Plus, uh, the other. Th- oh, here's the other part of their argument is uh, America is also a very rich com- uh, country, and um, basically what you're seeing. This is their argument is that um, because we have so much disposable income, it makes a ton of sense for us to spend that on on health because we want to be happier we want to live longer Mm. like that's a very good value proposition once you get past a certain level of income allocating it toward medicine makes a lot of sense you're just going to be a better like quality of life does this totally make sense when you compare us to germany or Mm. you know like the nordic countries no it doesn't but like those are the i think the two best arguments to sort of apologize for this what is actually happening as far as i can tell you know at least two things um one is that uh, because of our insurance system, because it's private, it is hugely market distorting. Um, there's a bunch of people who are taking value out. Um, so there's a lot of confusion uh, on like what the prices are. Mm. Uh, like So that kind of stuff is happening. So the insurance company takes 20%. The doctors will sort of upcharge and try to reallocate money across different patients. Some who are very, you know, 
uh, well-compensating patients, some are not. So there's a lot of shifting around and murkiness and, you know, like sort of it's very hard to see the prices. So that and that comes almost purely and is almost intentional from our private insurance system. And we can talk about that in detail at some other point, but mm-hmm. it's, it's very clearly the case that our health insurance here is intentionally distorting. The other thing is because the costs are not coming out of my pocket as an American immediately, I don't uh, have any incentive to limit the amount of Mm. cost. There's nobody Mm. who's immediately obviously holding the costs. Mm. So I might decide to go for a more expensive procedure in part because I don't know how much it's going to cost, but also because the cost will be borne by, I think, Mm. my employer. Mm. Mm-hmm. My employer, on the other hand, like sees it as a way of you know compensating me. So they're just mm-hmm. gonna you know when there's an increase next year, they won't give me a bigger wage, but mm-hmm. that's fine because like I'm getting what I want from the health insurance. So mm-hmm. and then the government has no incentive to keep the prices low because that would reduce GDP. So like it's just a crazy system here in the United mm-hmm. States where nobody feels responsible for controlling mm-hmm. the costs. Employers don't see it that way. The people purchasing all that stuff. And it probably also doesn't help if you have these four or five major players, like you said before, um, yeah. with a lot of concentration right. of power and, and capital. Yeah. Um, and makes it much easier, I guess, to kind of negotiate the prices also That's right. uh, among them. And here's another thing. This is a little bit on the side here, but just to give you a sense of how weird it is in America, because we pay in premiums to these four or five major you know, insurers, they have a huge percentage of the stock market. So Hmm. if we were to break up these companies, I don't know, 60% of the American stock market would disappear um, or be like, it's, it's a, so uh, when Obamacare was going on, like there were very serious considerations about what would happen to the uh, liquidity Hmm. of these Hmm. markets because a lot of the premium that gets put in there is immediately put and invested into into these kinds of like. So you, you're gonna have to you're gonna have to email me these names. Maybe I'm gonna have to uh, reallocate some of my stocks to them. Uh, it seems like <laughs> they, they seem to be doing pretty well. It's a very I mean like these are very lucrative companies. These are yeah. I mean we, we were, I would go toe to toe with them like back in the day. Um, like I that was before I became a professor. Like that was my job was to negotiate with them. So we got to see their books of business and know exactly what their profit margins were and, and that kind of stuff, which is super fascinating. That's actually what got me into thinking about data. Yeah, so this was, was one of the things that amazed me the most uh, out of your graduate time in the University of Pennsylvania. You actually helped the university out with their healthcare, right? Yeah. So you got, you're going to have to share that story now because we, yeah. we it was our cliffhanger last week. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so when I was in consulting, I was here, actually, I, was, I worked for Stanford, in part one of my clients was Stanford. So I got to know this company. Um, that was providing health insurance to the students at Stanford. Um, and, you know, I got their data, but it was sort of like a struggle because they didn't want to let us see the data. They didn't want to. And so, like, it was it was always a battle with this company. Um, and because I was the I was a consultant, I wasn't the client. Uh, things would get very tense with their data analysts, their actuary, the person who was pricing from the insurance you know, side. His name was Paul, and he had a really bad Boston accent. He, uh, so he like called him Boston Paul. Boston Paul was annoyed by me, this twenty-something kid who was like really trying to get his numbers and prove that he was wrong, that he should not be charging as much uh, for Stanford. So that was always a frustration. I did that for about three years with Stanford, and then I moved to Penn. <laughs> and then when I was at Penn, 
I was, again, uh, I w- we, Penn was using the same health insurance company. And again, it turns out that it was Boston Paul, again, who was the insurer. But this time, I was now the client. And uh, so that was actually a lot of fun because he could no longer, like, deny me the data I wanted. So I got to, like, pull in every stream of data. Yeah, he had to give it to me quickly. I got to see all. So I got to, I got looking in the data. And for the six years before I got there, they were, this insurance company was overcharging by a million to $2 million per year. Like, so there was an agreed upon price, but because of how they were charging, it didn't, it wasn't obvious, but they were overcharging by a million. And this was coming right out of student paychecks. This was coming right out. Uh, but again, parents it was pockets. very ambiguous. Say again? Out of parents' pockets. Parents' pockets, exactly. And, um, and because nobody, this is a very confusing system. And nobody quite knew how to look at their pricing. Nobody quite knew. And so I presented this to uh, like the students and to the faculty and in front of Boston Paul. And uh, it was just like stunned silence. Like nobody had realized how much they were overcharging us. And it like, again, it had totaled up to something like $10 million over the recent part of the contract. And so, yeah, we ended up negotiating a, an extremely cool contract which is they guaranteed that they would um if uh basically if um we won we got to keep money and if they won they would give us the money back so they had they capped it um moving into the future i don't know if they still have that contract that we negotiated but they were had they they realized that they had been caught so badly that they gave us a one-sided contract for you know a handful of years afterwards very well done mike Uh, that was that was Kind of satisfying. Proud, yeah. Proud of you, man. Um, maybe just one one last aspect that I also found in preparation um, for this question: Why is there no universal healthcare in the U.S.? There's a New York Times article from 2019 that's arguing one of the reasons for that is yeah. one word: race. So uh, race yeah. relations in the U.S. Yeah. Uh, what they mean by that, that basically after the Civil War was won uh, in the 1860s and the, the slave population was freed, then the Southern Democrats at the time, who were lobbying um, against equality um, of the minorities, um, they, were, they effectively you know, blocked any form of legislation that would have provided a more universal uh, health care benefit um, yeah. to, to minority populations. I mean, it's such a powerful story in the United States over and over again that uh, we carve out uh, part part of I mean, what it means to be American, like, and what it means to like sort of protect each other and that kind of stuff. We keep carving out certain groups, you know, like you know, African Americans over and over again have been pushed out of these kinds of programs, and it just is so hard. And, And that still very much happens. Like in the 80s and 90s, there was discussion of like welfare queens, uh, which was a reference, an oblique reference to, uh, you know, black women. Um, And they didn't want to give insurance and social support to uh, these people. Mm -hmm. And and yeah, uh, I should have said that earlier. That's a really important part of the story, too, about why we Mm -hmm. don't have public, a really good public health system. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of pressure not to help everybody. But to tie this back to um, Obamacare, the Affordable Care Act, um, uh, 
yeah. also notably the first black president um, that brought yeah. health insurance uh, to nearly 20 million, I believe, previously, yeah. previously uninsured adults. Right. And a lot of them were the, you know, the people that fell through the cracks of the system before, as you, as you said earlier. Um, a lot of them also uh, blacks and other minor yeah. minorities. Oh, right? A huge percentage, yeah. And from different parts of the country too. I mean, like it's not, you know, like, uh, you know, I think it's correct to talk about like, uh, you know, African Americans and the burden they've had. There's a lot of Hispanics in the Southwest. There's a lot of like really poor white folk from like sort of the Mid Atlantic, you know, north part of the of the Southwest or Mason Dixon line area, and like these people just get pushed way to the side, um, over and over again. And that's what that system really helped. So change has been happening. Uh, after all, um, yeah. what, what's your outlook? Will things improve further? Is there kind of like a backlash? Um, yeah. what's the... It's interesting, you know, like one of the uh, one of the arguments, um, and this was an argument that was made back in, like when I was in consulting, so in the two early 2000s, was the rate of increase in our health insurance, health care here in the United States was something like annually, it was like 10%. So the costs were sort of going up, the amount of allocation. And someone was like, it can't keep doing that. It literally can't. Like it just, that's not something that's sustainable. It's gonna have to do something. And so the the argument, and I still, I think this is probably where we're at, is it's sort of like either things will explode, like in the sense that like we will cease to be able to offer health insurance, like there, you know, like a, a huge chunk of the, of the American population won't get it, or, this system will cease to exist and another one will have to take its place because it, it doesn't protect enough people and it costs too much and it increases at a rate that's not sustainable. So it can't be sustained. So it the system will create. Mm. That's a very blunt argument, but it's correct. I mean that like if it can't be sustained, then it won't. So either you'll see some major political force emerge um, that will uh, have to restructure it or or maybe like, the corporations themselves will have to sort of change how they're offering benefits and doing the cost controls, but it literally just can't keep going on this way, except for I'm a little bit wrong because, I mean, it did slow down. The rates are no longer like 10% per year. Mm -hmm. I forget what the most recent one was, but it's more like five or six now, which is still higher than inflation and, and that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. So I don't know. I mean, there's no obvious, you know, thing that's going to change. Um, in the short run, but it's not a system that's built for the long run. It was not an intentional system. I mean, that's like part of the, the story that I was telling you is like uh, it came out of an accidental tax benefit um, that wasn't well thought out at all. All right. This was today's episode of The Americanist. Um, please do subscribe to us uh, and leave a favorable rating uh, on iTunes. Uh, next time, we'll talk about... Sleepy Joe. Yes, that's my man. <laughs> man from Pennsylvania. Sleepy. And uh, yeah. we'll see how many people his uh, German shepherds will have bitten until then. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> yeah, we'll be, we'll be happy to talk about all his plans to fix, well, basically everything. Yeah, basically everything. Thanks so much, Mikey, for your insight. And yeah, talk to you next time. Bye-bye. Later, dude.